came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hey. Hey. Season 7, Episode 7. Please note that I finally got the number of the episodes right. This is the first time in this season. This is amazing. Um, still disappointed that there is no dance. Camilo, Jason keeps promising us, right? I mean, the time is yes. running out. We only have Absolutely. two more episodes left. We have to get organized for the next, I'm sure. I know. Okay. Two more episodes left, Jason. The expectations are high. The anticipation is killing us. Send me a reminder or like an appointment, like a dance appointment. Just I will send you a dance appointment. This is the thing that is totally lacking in our calendars, a dance appointment. And yeah. make what you want out of this. Also, well, but kind of on a serious note, I hope you're okay. I know that the storm is kind of coming to Florida, so hope things are okay. Yeah, it's crazy timing for this, and my internet is not doing too well right now, but um, just thinking of everybody down south in Florida, it's, it looks fine for where I am, but there's definitely going to be a, a lot of impacts on people's lives. So right. we'll be watching that and thinking of everybody. Yeah, well, so hopefully it's not too bad. Anyway. Books. Yeah, books. Well, we're on to the third of our four reading episodes. Hopefully yeah. you all listening and watching have enjoyed coming along on this trip with us. So far in our first two reading episodes, we discussed Malcolm Ferdinand's Decolonial Ecology and Max Leboran, Pollutionist Colonialism. Amazing discussions. If you miss them, check out YouTube recordings or the audio episodes when they come out on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. So today we're continuing these discussions and I'm particularly excited about this book because we're finally reading Paolo Freire. And those of you who follow our podcast know that Ksenia and I are big fans of Freire and we've been spent, we always spend a lot of time engaging Freire's work and kind of linking back to things we've learned from his body of work. Today, we're discussing the last book that Paolo Freire wrote before his death, Pedagogy of Indignation. Yay, yeah, so here it is. Indeed, I think big fans is probably understatement. Obsession might be a more accurate description of how we feel about Freire. So I was super excited that the audience chose one of Freire's books because of course it wasn't given, right? We only, I think, out of all 16 books, only one was Freire. So this is super exciting. But also, I'm super excited that Estella, Dr. Stella Carpi has joined us today. Hi, Estella. It's really, really nice. everyone. Thanks nice to have you on, on the podcast. So Estella is a lecturer in humanitarian studies at the Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction at UCL in the UK. Estella is a social anthropologist, and her research mainly focuses on social responses to conflict-induced humanitarian assistance in the Levant and Turkey. 
on Estella's work revolves around identity politics in crisis-affected settings, anthropology of the state and humanitarianism, and the overlapping of welfare and emergency relief. Wow, I'm absolutely fascinated with your work, and I'm so glad that you joined us today to talk about Freire's book. Thank you so much. Camilo, I know your favorite question. You know, you, question. You've been waiting yeah. for this question for yeah. two weeks, right? So Especially because the first time was a surprise. I didn't expect that <laughs> question, but now I can get prepared. So it's much more easy. Not Ooh, necessarily so okay. what I'm saying is better, but that's what I found. Maybe um, I should prepare a surprise for the next uh, episode. Maybe. <laughs> Thank you, and nice to see you all, and thank you, Estella, super nice to see you. Alfred's book, as you said, was chosen by the audience, but was the only one there. You already mentioned that you are a specific fan. The book is absolutely an interesting book that somehow connects back with the different others, more, if you want, more famous Paulus Freire's book. You said already said already that he's been the last before his death. Uh, it has very two interesting introduction by two of Paulo Freire's most important scholars that carry the legacies within Latin America and outside of the of the book. It's pretty 2004, so it's not super uh, super recent. And I think what characterized the book, both in its interesting dimension of reflection, but also structure is that he's organized around what uh, he called pedagogical letters, which is a beautiful poetical way both to construct the idea that writing is both a necessity and a demand to think, to critically think, and in case of Freire, to critically think about the role of pedagogy, but also the possible future. And actually, each of the chapter is pretty much a letter too. I mean, other people would have said it's a letter without the address to whom is sent in the sense that it's completely open to everybody. And I found that this is, again, very, very important and very poetic in the way in which is Some of the letters are more constructed. Others are, you see, the different tone is less academic and very much more personal. There is an intertwine of uh, the usual cosmology of Paolo Freire, love on one side and anger and the other. So the register are of the linguistic, but also the way in which somehow are very useful for what we're trying to suggest about the role of critical theory is that you not always have only the critical position, a denunciation in the words of Freire, but to a certain extent is also to imagine the otherwise, to imagine something that would come after. Proposition, yes, but certainly in the tone of Freire is hope. And I think what we need today is certainly very much hope uh, into that sense. And his beautiful final chapter, he says exactly into the text, which is denouncing, announcing, prophecy, utopia, and dreams. And I think this is probably one of the, you know, the last, of course, but the best structure of the reason why hope, future, not necessarily utopia, but hope, future, and love are still fundamental ingredient to carve a critical reflection. The other dimension, very short, is education. And we all know that the critical reflection comes about the very fundamental experimentation about critical pedagogy. There is no way we can sort of abandon a reflections around criticality if not unlearning and relearning the different forms of. 
So the tension towards pedagogy is absolutely direct spot on, but also a way of framing a more ethics and poetics of, of uh, what's next. So the reason the, the book is really much easier because it's not academic, I would say. Still, it's, it, you know, require time to engage with the beautiful poetic of Freire, especially for those who are not aware of Freire's previous reflection. Thank you. Thank you, Camilo. And, you know, th there is a lot that I want to unpack and quite a few similar points, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. Estella, but I want to hear from you. What was, what are your thoughts on the book? Yeah, like, uh, thank you for the invitation again. And thanks, Camilo, like, for, uh, for this introduction. And I agree that, like, it's not a fully academic way of writing. And actually, like, the part of the book that speaks to me personally the most is this non-academic way of writing, by the way. So personally, I've always felt emotional proximity like to, to Freire and his work. I was also a fan of the pedagogy of the oppressed. And like presently, as a lecturer in humanitarian studies, I must say that it was very re-energizing and refreshing to read this book, especially at the beginning of the academic year. So again, as an academic, I can say I can't but associate my thoughts on the disaster and refugee scholarship with what I think of the politics of the system in which we need to work. So the trope of the book that speaks to me the most is this daily life tension between freedom and authority. And in that sense, like to me, Freire was a sort of powerful reminder that the future doesn't make us, and although we're subjected to several structures of power, like even in everyday academic life, like we are the ones who need to decide what our intervention in this world needs to be. So the main message that I take from there is that like we need to take responsibility for what we decide because there's always a possibility and we can't hide behind this sort of fatalistic determination that, to me, is, is kind of overpopulating current accounts on uh, the neoliberal academia, as though neoliberal academia were a sort of given formula, like a sort of given reality. But yeah, like I, in, I fully identify with Freire's thinking, and that's why I, don't, I didn't even see this as a radical pedagogy, but rather as a sort of like the only possible real pedagogy in place. So advocacy for the displaced and advocacy for ethical decency in academia are necessarily interrelated to me. And consistency between the two of them is a sort of personal duty. So I struggle to peacefully accept those who don't have the same reading of the world. And frankly, I struggle to limit myself to merely propose that truth, as Freire himself insists we do, without imposing that truth upon people, which is instead what I feel I, I would like to do. So yeah, that's the powerful reminder here that we can always choose. And, and to me, that was a very sad reminder because disaster, displacement scholarship and academic politics are both a product of our 
de facto conservativism nowadays. So that was, was the main sort of reminder that I took from the book. Thank you. Thank you, Stella. And, you know, it's interesting how the themes of duty and responsibility and kind of neoliberal academia keep popping up, right? We've been talking about this in previous two books. And it's, I find it quite fascinating how the books that we're reading are really quite difficult, different, right? And we're sort of trying to connect this with, with critical thinking and kind of, sort of disaster studies. And yet um, the duty and responsibility seem to, seem to underpin quite, quite a lot of what we're talking about. Jason, what do you think? Tell me you hated it. Come on. <laughs> no chance. You know, <laughs> no, I, I think it, it's another book that has made me reflect on my own practice and um, just in a different way, you know, than our previous discussions made me also reflect on like being a parent, obviously on being an educator, being a mentor, more in relation to like, like how people how people like be in the world, how they relate to each other, um, and like what and how I engage with communities that are that are impacted or living with risk, you know, and which is what I do all the time in my work. So made me reflect a lot. I really enjoyed the notes from Anna Maria, um, both in the preface, but also after after some of the letters, because I think they were really gave context to like when this was written and what was going on and just another dimension to each of the chapters which is incredible in the preface she was writing about kind of linking to his broader body of work and saying about his um legitimate love like legitimate anger and where this book was come where these letters were coming from this sense of indignation but also like a deep love for people for humanity. And I think in, I'm not sure if I can, wasn't planning to read that, but she mentions, you know, the, the balance, like the tension between love and anger. And mm. I think that comes through in previous work, but also kind of permeates this book. And so some of the things that really stood out to me were a focus on change and on adaptation and like rigid, like a, disobedience to the expectation of adaptation to injustice and uh, so that came through pretty strongly to me and like just made me challenge my myself about times when I like give in to the temptation to just adapt you know to just be okay with things that are not okay mm -hmm. especially if as someone with responsibilities to keep fighting things and he talks about people quitting the struggle you know accepting the status quo is quitting the struggle. I think he says later on in the book, and he talks about like how people in different positions can do that and brings it back to like the idea of ways in which both the oppressed and the oppressor can both just adapt and give in to that situation and be passive. One thing I did want to read was about change because he says that he talks about change as something natural, something essential connects it to risk, which I think was really interesting in our field, talking a bit more about risk, but also talking about how change is like being part of change, shaping the world, making a impact in the world is like a struggle towards something. And in, let's see, page, page seven in the first letter on the spirit of the book, 
Yeah, I thought this was a really poignant extract. So I quote, if my presence in history is not neutral, I must accept its political nature as critically as possible. If in reality, I am not in the world simply to adapt to it, but rather to transform it. And if it is not possible to change the world without a certain dream or vision for it, I must make use of every possibility there is not only to speak about my utopia, but also to engage in practices consistent with it. And I mean, in our society, in the academy, I think we're encouraged to reject utopian thinking, reject dreaming, reject things that are too difficult or that, yeah, are not practical, are not pragmatic. Um, and I just, yeah, just to finish, I love the way that this book encourages dreaming, encourages us to think of utopia because that's what gives us hope right no absolutely and it is the kind of the struggle and the presence right that really connects to me in particular this book to what we're trying to do in disaster scholarship and i'm sure we'll come back to to, to that you know for me as, as i already said i was really excited to read this book but i didn't know when this book was suggested that it's actually a selection of letters and essays i kind of just assumed you know that it would be more or less the same the format like pedagogy of the oppressed right the pedagogy of, of hope and i actually really like this format because it made me appreciate more the idea of the dialogue right which of course kind of critical to, to freire's philosophy it was almost like having a conversation with him and but also the two people who wrote the opening and actually last week sorry it's a tangent i got to see freire's widow anna maria araujo freire virtually because we here at lafra we had a tour of the Sousa santos giving a public lecture another oh fangirl like there's not tomorrow never mind and so freire's widow she did the opening for us of the Sousa santos's lecture and so reading her introduction to the book and then kind of hearing her talk about Freire's work was really quite exciting you know because I could kind of I could see her engagement and excitement about th this work right and the way that she critically reflects on her late husband's philosophy and there was one thing that struck me in particular and that is her emphasis on the fact that you cannot work with or for people if you don't love people and I don't think that as researchers, we appreciate this enough, right? The question of love never, never comes up. And because we're not supposed to love, right? It's kind of, it's too emotional. It's not objective. I'm sure it's not rigorous. Um, some would argue. Now, how do you rigorously love? Maybe an interesting research question. And so I really appreciate the essays that, that highlighted that. But for me particularly, and I kind of, I can relate to what you were saying, Stella, the essays on education, particularly adult education and hope, were, were especially prominent. So I want to read one very short paragraph, and it's from the essay called Challenges to Adult Education in Light of the New Technological Restructuring. And so Freire writes, education is always a, cert a certain theory of knowledge put into practice. It is naturally political. It has to do with purity, never with purita puritanicalness. And it is in itself an expression of beautifulness. The necessary insistence with which I have been speaking about that point has led certain critics from the right to say of me that I'm not an educator or a thinker of education, but rather a political activist. It is important to state that those who deny me my pedagogicalness, drowned and nullified, according to them, in the political, are just as political as I am, except that obviously they take a different position from me. 
And it's that emphasis on ideology, and then Freire later writes, I think, in one of the last chapters, the ideology that demises ideology it is really important, I think, when we talk about the politicalness of education, the political of places that we all bring into our classrooms, right? Because how can we do this otherwise? And the whole idea of ideology or lack of such when we talk about disasters and we've had the, this kind of resistance, you know, over and over again from many established scholars, this, you know, disasters are not ideological and we shouldn't be involved in ideological discussions when we talk about disasters really resonated. And to me, this book and this paragraph in particularly in, in particular emphasize that education and pedagogy isn't just about teaching and learning or perhaps isn't at all about teaching and learning but instead they are kind of an ideological pathway for hope because as Freire writes right the revolution requires educated people who are also liberated people and in in other words people who understand what liberation is all about right it's very hard to have empathy if you don't have that understanding but the way our education system operates in my opinion that instead of Given this liberation, instead of kind of making the oppressed feel that their knowledge, uh, the, instead it kind of makes the oppressed feel that their knowledge isn't recognized, right? And inevitably, they feel that they become not aware of kind of how much they know, right? Let alone that there is a value to their knowledge. And so overall, uh, these essays, as Freire's writing in particular, it kind of reminded me once again, that we need to be more human, maybe, you know? And because as humans, we, we then we are then allowed to hope and to love. And they kind of showed that, you know, whilst love may sound, I don't know, trivial or naive, pursuing love is kind of the hardest challenge, right? If we think about it from the critical point of view, because love always requires humility, but also love permits kind of power of authentic dialogue, right? But only if we understand love as power. Just to wrap up one point I want to make, and I would really like to kind of to hear your thoughts about this, is that Freire's work is radical, right? It kind of, and we should treat it as radical. But what I've been seeing more, and similar thing happened with Bell Hook's work, is that it's been kind of taken out of its political context, right? And almost been treated as sort of mainstream, you know, really adopted by kind of liberal narratives. And so that whole idea of ideology has completely been removed. And that that worries me a lot when the kind of the opposing ideology almost adapts and adopts the radical ideological ideas and making make, make depoliticizing them uh, overall. We see this in disasters, right? We, we see this with quite quite a lot of feminist literature, and I, in my opinion, we are starting to see this with Freire. But maybe I'm reading too much into what's happening. Well, I think it's super fantastic. We see the tonality of the different conversation that is happening is, is basically pointing to the fact that this is super rich and stimulus reading to many of the discipline and to many of the challenge that all of our disciplines are having both in and within and outside university, mm -hmm. I think. I want to make two points maybe very quickly and then passing over. The first one is, I think is uh, even in the histories of that is in the way and probably if we would have read the sort of you know the original language would have been different but the tone of the text is purely kind of very frankfurt school oriented just imbued into a very interesting mm -hmm. latin american flavor of aesthetics with some rhetorical figures with the colors that are being given the notion of poetics I think that is very interesting because it's basically both Marxist on a very fundamental level, 
and what I see is also important is that question the notion of future as not carve out from the struggle, but imposed from outside. And I think that is super important. So the future being utopian or not, being a dream or not, those are the different synonyms that I think he's using. The future is done here through the struggles. And I think what we pointed, what I think, I mean, this to me is pointing out is all of our labor of struggle within the different disciplines and within this tension between unpacking and repacking. And he says something like writing and rewriting, and I think is a measure of the way in which he see this labor of, of continuously questioning the present, but not giving an image of the future, which is not necessarily the import of a future, you know, the disaster-free future or, mm. you know, the completely resilient future, just to use the language of us or the sustainable future, whatever we want it. But certainly is this kind of continuous struggle with this is, and therefore that is completely dismantling the structures that makes that possible, which is purely material. But I think he made a very other passage into a story, which is this idea of, of denouncing transgression, but also to announce the future. And I found it interesting, this both denunciation and announcement is what is possible in the present to be carried through in a sort of past of the future, which is not the future that is important. And I think there is where all our scientific kind of struggling with the social science and other forms of scientific knowledge is happening. The other things about love and the second point is it's probably bell hooks have was right in was all about love and you remember that beautiful mm. book that but i think love is for me in the way in which is paulo's freire's pedagogy is really much about proximity and it's the proximity with the struggle but also the proximity with the individual with thought with tensions and with the, i would say the epistemologies that are not there is continuously carving out new epistemology, new way of saying things, a new way of naming issues that are absolutely important into that. And I think that is important because love is actually this possibility, this potential that is, is emerging, is not necessarily something, but is still, in the word of prayer, a struggle, a work, a labor, something that is not, you know, just given or, you know, effective. So while on one side there is an affective dimension that I think our disciplines are yet to embrace, atmospheric, more anthropological, beyond the human and so on, the notion of love here to me is still very central to the pedagogy of liberation. And as you said very clearly, is a struggle for liberation, is a struggle to assert the possibility Oh, very Foucauldian in nature. So I think the tonality that he has within are kind of canonical within a generation of critical studies. But towards this idea of affectiveness is not probably completely defined in his own thought, but it's surely very, very present. And I think it's super important to remind. I think, you know, the, the kind of the whole idea of struggle, right? As Ferreira writes about it, um, he emphasizes that the struggle must be led by the oppressed, right? And so solidarity and sympathy and kind of good intentions, they are not enough for the struggle, right? If they're oppressed, do not lead it, do not kind of play a role with it. And Estella, so I wonder, you know, from the kind of humanitarianism perspective, what we very often see in humanitarianism, sympathy and good intentions, right? But where, where does struggle come to play? 
Yeah, so like, I mean, <laughs> and again, like the point I would like to raise speaks to your comment earlier, Xenia, I mean, like nothing can be apolitical or depolitical or even depoliticized you know, to a certain extent. So, of course, like these are the dangers in a sense of teaching humanitarian studies as well. And it's something that I always want to speak to students about. So like, that's why, like it's, as you said earlier, like I find it very dangerous to have this sort of assimilationism of radical thinking and radical pedagogy into the liberal discourse. I find it extremely dangerous because it makes, um, like it construct like it makes conservative teachers pass for radical educators in a sense so yeah the danger of tokenism i would say but also of this sort of ideological interpretation or it's not even a misinterpretation sometimes but it's a sort of deliberate assimilationism so that radical pedagogy can really take place or struggles to take place Something that I wanted to add as well, and instead speaks to the comment on adaptation that Jason made earlier, is my discomfort that comes from adaptation as our own politics of being academics and being instructors of disaster and displacement studies, rather than relying, like rather than focusing, let's say, on indignation and denunciation. And again, as you all said earlier, I mean, it's a indignation and denunciation as a healthy forms of anger in the sense that all of these still speaks to love. It's still about loving people and kind of trying to develop hope in the future. And so like in, a, in the disaster and displacement literature, we do see some verbal indignation and denunciation in a lot of the scholarship, but there's a lot that actually remains in the realm of tokenism, doesn't reflect the way we live and the existential consistency that Freire talks about and I, I premised before. So in that sense, like I, I found it like as a, a very powerful reminder for myself as an instructor that teaching indignation and teaching with indignation needs to be our own decision. So it's a decision that we either abort or we kind of decide to live up to. So and about this, like I, the book really reminded me of uh, um, some critical thinking coming from Syrian activists and intellectuals that I became familiar with when I was following the events like throughout the Syrian revolution years earlier. So Omar Aziz is a Syrian activist and intellectual for the sake of clarity, like he died in Al-Assad's prisons in 2013 during the uprising. So he theorized that we need to have a time for the revolution and the time for power, like a time of power. Basically, it's our life regime, academic regime, even teaching or research regime, and so many regimes overlapping. So we have to make sure as educators that there is some space for this time of the revolution that Freire kind of advocates for as well. So this 
concretely means coordinating our pedagogic acts of teaching and educating people with some concrete doing towards social progress and social transformations. So as academics, we, we all know that the perfect synergy between the two can be there. It's unlikely to happen because of spatial and temporal restrictions, but somehow it needs to be there. So for example, like if you teach forced migration in a class, in the current state of things, like you are less likely to be the one stopping deportations of refugees at Gatwick Airport. Or if you teach the injustice of how disasters are managed and that are even capitalized upon as sources of profit in a specific part of the earth, we are unlikely to be the ones that more actively try to rebel against these politics of disaster management. But like this reminder about the future as a possibility, right, like was was very like kind of refreshing for me, like to try to understand if there are more adequate methodologies that can be used, like citizen journalism as a source of knowledge production, and that can kind of try to, to convey this message that the pedagogical and the political or the politically responsible shouldn't be a dichotomy, the dichotomy that I, I personally struggle with. But it's the system in which we work again that wants us to experience, mm -hmm. experience this as a dichotomy. So yeah, like I, I always dwell upon like research methods that kind of liberate me from these, from what I personally live as a scene, like the scene of acting less than what I should, because like I'm primarily an academic and thinking inside of things necessarily prevails over action. So that is my personal struggle, let's say. I find it fascinating, right? Because this is what kind of Freire writes about in, I think, it, first in, in the first letter, this sort of, the, like, mangled self-esteem, right? And this kind of confused identity that, that is, of course, so difficult, right? When you're sort of almost choosing between a political activist, right? And a pedagogue, but of course, as he highlights, you're, you're always both, right? It's sort of impossible to, to d dismantle them if you're serious about it. And then he writes that changing is difficult, but it is possible. Um, and, you know, that's what we're talking about. But Jason, I have a, I have a question for you, <laughs> just in case you, I'm just, I'm just going to interview you. Why not? You know, we kind of, we talked about struggle a lot now, both Camilo and Estelle reflected on it and me as well. And you and I have been talking a lot about struggle in, as a kind of, way of overcoming not overcoming that's not the right word of struggle as a kind of way of talking about vulnerability right where vulnerability is a strength rather than the weakness right and you wrote about this and this is kind of something that we've been trying to push forward but of course as Freire writes that no one can overcome weakness without recognizing it so you know i mean how do we deal with this in our pedagogical practices and in, in our disaster practices rather than yeah, that's a great question. And I was just thinking of this, of a quote from Edo's intro, where 
he's talking about the way that liberal educators have, have used Freire to argue for what he's calling the, the pedagogy of disenfranchisement as a, as a way to kind of mask over the relationship between the oppressed and oppressor. And I think that speaks to, in our field to vulnerability as a concept, as something that just is there and it's nobody's fault, you know? And again, that's kind of a rejection of the fact that our society creates risk and creates unequal distribution of risk through systems of oppression and violence. And so like for our discussions on how to, how to maybe use, use that injustice in a transformative way or in a way to band together or to like grow solidarity. I think that's the perspective I would take to answering that dilemma. Uh, I think as we write and discourse about vulnerability as a, Oh, Jason, we lost the sound. Oh, I think it was my elbow. I like press something as we think, <laughs> sorry, as we think about vulnerability as something it's part of our human condition, but it's also unjustly distributed. But I think it, there's so much possibility there for people to, to come together, to like understand each other better, to support each other and ultimately to create, to like find conditions for solidarity, to fight against adaptation, maybe to fight against passivity, to demand better, to change the world through collective action. I think it's interesting. Maybe one, one, one little observation that I found very useful. There is actually a little kind of poetry or a little piece written by Paul Freire at the beginning of the text, at least in the edition that I have. In the, this reminds me of two things, which I found it interesting in relation to this potentiality, pot potentials for the future. And poetry as always, I think, something that we need to reinstall back into many disciplines. Ours for sure, mine, definitely. Because I found, I remember something that was said by, you know, Juju Agamben long time back and we say that the, the very p powerful potential of language is actually residing in the poetry. Because in the poetry is where all these various possibilities of both interpretation, images, future, pathway, situations, uh, agency, if you want uh, to use a more tangible word, are possible. So language is not only the mechanics of writing and speaking or the per se, we would have called it the scientific. And I found that this is very poetic in that sense, poetic in terms of creativity and possibility is actually the, po the poetry that allows us a lot of possibilities of seeing things. But on the contrary, the pedagogy, I think, is a field of experimentation, which I found it extremely interesting that Yes, it's a site of struggle, fantastic, but it's the place where we can, as teachers and educators, continuously embrace a fundamental struggle. Maybe in little gestures, stem from the curricula to the different ways in which we do shapes, uh, the relationship with the students or with the institution, with all the limitations that we all know, but surely is a site of struggle 
I think that remained very interesting. It's very much connected to what Max Liborio and the other book we discussed mm -hmm. was somehow alluding more institutionally and profoundly. And you remember one of the fundamental, you know, very originally Frankfurtian logic, very Marxian question was what to do. I don't think that Paulo Freire is actually suggesting us what to do. He's actually allowing different pathways to embrace, to experiment, I would say, which I do agree. The issue with radicality now is popularized and has been problematic. And actually the risk that you point, Xenia, is very, is very risky, is very present to, you know, to fetishize Paulo mm. as to fetishize all the others, we call it radical scholars. And I think the radicality at the moment is probably that, that opportunity to think, uh, you know, or not only to, you know, to understand the reality, but to change it, but also to intervene into, I think, what is probably need in a very much more planetary dimension. And this is what the disaster studies could actually tell us to do. It's not the silos of a discipline, but it's really to think the overall planetary dimension. We open, you know, the conversation asking Jason's situation with the hurricane. We are all embracing to that together. And I think Paulo Freire's pedagogy is actually asking a planetary conditions of that dimension and experimentation. Of course, disentangling different locale, but this is a situation that I that speaks very, very strongly to me through forms of liberation. Yes, but with a completely fundamental situation now, which is the planetary condition. I found it extremely direct into this new opportunity and role that he's giving to us. And indeed, and you know, this kind of, this made me think to about the, what Freire calls dark clouds, right? This kind of the, the dark clouds of, ne of neoliberalism, right? Or kind of neoliberal discourse that, that are dominating in the education because education has become a tool of training, um, a kind of almost vocational training, right? Where even thinking has become kind of almost like a mechanical, mechanical process. And that of course leads to sort of technical dexterity or scientific knowledge because this is what we see as valuable right rather than acknowledging that there are knowledges that you know that that leads us back to kind of to, to the empathy and humility that we have and such thinking leads to i guess demise you know maybe vanishing of utopias right and gradually the demise of hope and if we don't have hope then does make us less human? Are we becoming less human? I don't know. I don't know. I can respond maybe before leaving to Estella, something yeah. that I read recently with another book they absolutely recommend, which is more probably close to Stella's this, which is Tim Ingold, Anthropology. And he says something that I find it interesting and I'm quoting just because I have it here. What he tried to, to reflect is the idea of correspondence. So the fact that you are, which I find connected with liberation somehow, connected and you correspond to, you have a sort of responsibility in a sort of Donna Haraway logic, you are there. And he says, the form of scholarship that he looks is neither to understand the world around us, nor to interpret it, very classical, canonical, critical theory, to interpret what goes there, but rather to correspond to its constituents. So how is done? 
And I think that is beautiful because make the responsibility that is not disentangling or separating scientific understanding versus more whatever social or political is actually being entangled into there. And this is a question to ask to all our discipline. I found it beautifully connected. Maybe is hope, maybe is the other word that Freire is using a lot is fearlessness. Which I found it interesting is home without hope without fearlessness is is utopian. Fearlessness is exactly this energy that gave us possibilities of solidarity, possibility of experimentation, and yeah, you know, follow the with this idea of connectivity and correspondence that Tim Ingold is having. I found it encouraging, if you want, more than discouraging. Yeah, like what I like, Camillo, you kind of inspire like new questions for me, because like as a, let's say, as a forced migration scholar, I often wonder myself uh, in the past if something like empathy, for example, empathy for, for refugees, for vulnerabilities and so forth can actually be taught. So what I really liked in Freire's writing is this invitation to kind of, you know, feel the sentiment, cultivate the sentiment of hope, of indignation, of freedom. So not just freedom as a political or rational project, but I think he really preserves the importance of the sentiment there. And like in my past readings, like I, I was kind of struck by Charorty's notion of sentimental education. So after then, I've started wondering the extent to which we can really teach, we can really convey something like indignation, right? Like something like, um, I mean, this sort of political awareness as a sentiment as well, and not just like as, a, as an idea, as something that we hope people will cultivate themselves. So, yeah, these are the questions that I also I presently struggle with, especially when dealing with potentially future disaster professionals, let's say. Camilo couldn't take this anymore. I guess the, the, we have some technical problems. We, we lost him. I'll bring him back in if he, if he returns. Okay. Jason, do you want to add anything? The only thing I think that I was trying to think of bringing this back around to disaster studies is like the challenge for me like you know that we're facing right now with like engaging with funders engaging with like peer reviewers engaging with our institutions all of those engagements have like expectations and nor norms that are way far away from the discussion that we're having right and have an expectation for like you said earlier on, Ksenia, objectivity, like scientific rig, like Western scientific rigor, sure. generalizability, all of these things, as well as like compromise and apol apolitical agendas. And so it just like it makes me think, how do we how do we practice subversively in order to not disengage from those engagements or those responsibilities that we have? to engage in trying to change policy, engage in trying to support communities as they fight back mm -hmm. against the conditions they face, uh, but not compromise our values. So 
it just creates a lot of questions, a lot of things I need to self-reflect on uh, because of the position that disaster researchers and practitioners and so on are in, which is inherently compromised. For sure. And I really love that today's conversation kind of posed more questions or left us with more questions that perhaps, you know, we kind of, we started with, right. And so almost every reflection ended up with question and that's interesting. Um, and we have to wrap up, you know, this is, oh, the, an hour is just not enough. We kind of, okay, next time, Camilla, we schedule this for like 10 hours and then we sit and talk. It'll be great. But I, once again, I really appreciate reading with you all. And Estella, thank you so much for joining us today. It's just, it's been wonderful to have you. Thanks to um, all of you. It was a pleasure. It, and before we finish, let me just remind you about the book, one last book we're going to read in the season. And in two weeks, we are reading Silvia Federici's Patriarchy of the Wage, which is, of course, a book that 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 is very much Marxist in its foundation. So we hope for the audience you will join us in reading it. And we also want to know what you are reading. So please join our audience episode, which will also be our final episode, and tell us about your favorite books. Do you read disaster studies? Do you read outside disaster studies? What do you read? Why do you read those books? Jason and I are always open to book suggestions as well. That's all we that's all we do. We read. And follow us on Twitter and on any podcast apps. And of course Enjoy the rest of season seven. See you next week. Oh, in two weeks' time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Disasters Decon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.